All right, let's go ahead and pray. And before I pray, I'll introduce my mom and embarrass her. Her church, because of some basketball games, um, last night she works in Awana, so uh, normally she can't ever come like my dad does on Wednesday nights. But because their church schedule got shifted to Tuesday, apparently she wanted to come with my dad to class. So she got to come, probably keep us all in line. T and I, and as you will notice, there's a lot of information on your note sheet tonight, and not much space, much to my dad's disappointment, uh, there's not much space to write, but you'll understand why as we go through the lesson. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll look at God's Word tonight. Father, we thank you that um, in that probably, certainly, each one of us um, in the limited time that we've had here on this earth, in the, the dark times and the bright, we could say with the psalmist that we have tasted and seen that you are good. In the good times and the bad, that you prove to be good. When it, it feels like there's no hope, when um, all the lights seem to go out, Prove time and time again that you are good, and so we praise you for that, and we come to you in humble dependence because we are dependent upon your goodness to to bring us from point A in our Christian life to Z, and so we ask that you would help impress upon our hearts the amazing fact that you are a father and that you are a good father. You're not a tyrant. You're not imperfect. You are the perfectly good father, and we get the privilege of having a relationship with you. So as we consider that tonight, I pray that you would help us to think biblically and to be in awe of this relationship that you've brought us into. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we defined biblical love as what? Without looking at your sheet. Unless you cheated. Pete, what is biblical love before you drink? I don't remember your exact definition, but it's doing what's in the best interest of another. Okay. It's doing what is in the best interest of another. It's one of the definitions we talked about. I actually didn't give you mine. I gave you and then I gave you another one that I wrote down in your paper. And I liked this one only be I like that, that one simplicity, but I like the one that I put on a sheet um, for this reason is that I thought that it kind of captured some of the things that people in present day uh, America, when we talk about love, miss. And we said that biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So it's an act of the will, it's a decision, a choice, that's accompanied by emotion but not led by emotion, that leads to action. So it's demonstrated, it's, it's something that, that moves us to do something, and it's on behalf of its object. And if we even specify that part of it out even more, it's for the benefit. It's not just on behalf of, it's for the benefit or for the good of that person that you are setting your loving affection on. So that's how we define biblical love. And 
when we all came down to it, we felt that that was the most defensible, the defensible, <laughs> defensible definition because God could be said could uh, be said to have this kind of love, and then when he the kind of love that he commands of us, especially when he commands us to love our enemies, which is really really tough. This definition would prove true because none of us are going to have a love that is led by emotion towards our enemies. But we all can have a love that is led by a decision that at some point in time might be accompanied by emotion. And then we we rattled off in our discussion, I just listed a couple, or well, a handful of them, uh, how we described God's love, that it's unconditional, that it's undeserved, that it's unbreakable, that it's incomprehensible, that it's patient, active, so it's demonstrated, it's costly to himself. His love was initiated by himself, and it is for the good, the spiritual good or the benefit of his love's recipients. So tonight, we're going to discover what it means that God is our Father. And when I say discover, probably as I should qualify every week, we're just going to like just scan the surface. We're going to try to mine the depths, but we won't get very deep, I'm sure. But we're going to discover what it means that God is our Father and how we ought to respond to such an amazing truth. And when I say respond, I'm not just looking at we should bow down in praise. Of course we should. But what is our, even if I could say, responsibility? And so tonight, the way I'd like to do this, and I think I have this in your notes, and you'll see now why when I make this statement... Uh, why you have so much stuff on your page. So tonight I'd like to try to accomplish that goal of discovering what it means that God is our Father and what ramifications that has on our lives by looking at five texts of Scripture, which I've listed for you. And there's two things that I want you to kind of filter these texts by. Number one, how does this text contribute to my understanding of the fatherhood of God? And specifically, not just the fatherhood of God over, let's say, Jesus, but God's fatherhood of us, his spiritual children. And then number two, what is our appropriate response or what is our responsibility to this truth that we learn of God's fatherhood over us? So what's our responsibility as as his children? Does that make sense? So I didn't want to put these texts up on the screen because it might be hard for you to see and I didn't know if you'd bring your Bible. So I put them all on here. So you have little, little room to scribble notes. Um, so I apologize for that. But I picked the best of the evils. So so before we begin on discussing those two things in all these texts, our understanding of God's fatherhood and then our responsibility as his children, I just want to remind you of one thing that we discussed Jeepers, it's probably going to be four weeks ago. And that had to do with the whole context of Scripture. We talked about the God revealed in the Old Testament and then the God revealed in the New Testament. And I tried to give you this big picture view of Scripture. And I said that what God is trying to do, or I shouldn't say try, what He is doing is He is restoring everything back to the Garden of Eden. 
right? Because when God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve, and he was their father, and they were his people, right? And then they sinned, and instead of squashing them like the sinners that they they were, and he would have been just to do that, he made the promise in in Genesis 3.15 of the seed that was to come, right? And then... From that moment on, we just see that promise being expanded in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New Testament, ultimately until the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes back and the kingdom is inaugurated in full and we get the new heavens, the recreated heavens and the earth, and he will then, one one day in the future, finally and fully be our God and we will be his people. And so he's... he's, he's doing this massive restoration project from garden to paradise but they're they're been sandwiched in is what we're dealing with right now right but so keep that in mind that this promise and the, the fact that we're talking about the fatherhood of god it's not a foreign concept it's not like just poof into the new testament we go and this new concept is discovered it's it's a promise that bookends scripture I will be their God. They will be my people. I am your God. You are my people. So, the first text we'll look at is Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. I'll read it, and then we'll just answer these questions, or kind of tease this out, and I'm going to ask you to kind of tease this out with me, okay? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So what, what are some things that we can take away from this text about God's fatherhood over us? He's compassionate with us and he doesn't give us what we deserve um, because of our sin. And our response is to be grateful. Okay. That? He treats us as his children. He's slow to anger. Is there anything in the text that demonstrates our responsibility? Patty says to fear him. The text actually says that twice, once in verse 11 at the very end, for those who fear him. So the context, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. So his his love, that that special kind of love, is, is not on everybody in, in, in the same way. 
Then we get down to verse 13. He says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So there's some sort of, not saying that he doesn't love everybody, but he doesn't love everybody in the same way. We can at least say that for certain. He loves those who fear him with a special kind of love. So what does it mean to fear him? Okay. Is that what you said? Okay. Can we tease that out a little bit more? Because, I mean, what I call... Um, you know, when I was in college and I went to the Hertz Golf Open at one of the Disney golf courses and I followed Tiger Woods and Ernie Ells around the course and I saw them hit the ball a million miles away as high as I've ever seen. And I'm sitting there in awe. But I don't think that I'm fearing. Like, I'm not in fear of Tiger Woods. Maybe I should. (laughs) Obey. What? Obey. Obedience. Okay. I don't know if this is what you're asking, but when I think of fear, fearing God, I think of, like, reaping what we sow or consequences. I almost feel like sometimes that should be a fear in us, the way we live, because we have to stand before Him and give an account for everything we say and everything we do. That's that's what I think of. Yeah. Well, I don't... I get, I'm not trying to tease this out in, a, in such a way, and I think I'm probably leading you astray here. I'm not trying to suggest that what you're saying is wrong. What you're saying is right. The fear of God is an awe of God. But I guess what I'm trying to get us to think about is, so what? So what? Like, so what is the fear of God? Like, so it's this awe. Well, who who awes over God? You know, we're... <laughs> I'm trying to tie... Go I guess I'll it. tie what both of them are saying. It is a, it's, it, it is a reverence that results in an active obedience and a, a recognition of the perfect love that he has for us. Right. So it's not it's not just, you know, like you say, that it 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 causes us to want to obey. Yeah. Because of his character and who he is. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a fear that that not only garners a respect, like an appropriate sense of like actual fear, right? With wow, but it's also that moves us. It's not a stagnant thing. It's right. something that moves us. So, like at the end of Ecclesiastes, and what is it? I, I butchered this, but I think it's like chapter twelve, verse thirteen, maybe. But it's the Solomon. If you take this, Ecclesiastes, was written by Solomon. He says, okay, here's the conclusion of it all. My life has been a mess. You know, I've chased down this, 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 and this to try to find happiness. And here's what I've concluded happiness is at the end of my life. Fear God and do what? Keep his commandments. So it's a fear that that is a moving fear. That So God, here in this text, is a father, is likened to a father that is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and overwhelming in love. 
His anger is stayed. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I mean, all of us that are parents, we know at least like just a very tiny, very imperfect version of that, right? I mean, our hearts well up with compassion and grace to our kids. Lord willing, we're slow to anger. We abound in love. Hopefully we don't treat them as their sins deserve. But that type of amazing love a father has for his children, God has for us, those who fear him, those who have this awe that leads to action. So Pastor Doran defined the fear of God this way, and I think I've used it at least once this semester and once or twice last semester. It goes something like this. The fear of God is awe of God's majesty over us and God's mercy toward us. So it is awe of God's majesty over us. So that is kind of like when we talked about His holiness a few weeks back. There's that uh, majestic transcendence, right? He is wholly other. There's no one that He reports to or that He has to seek counsel from or He has to get approval from. He is majestic. He is wholly other. There is none like Him. So we are in awe of his majesty over us. He's king, but also his mercy toward us. He has withheld the wrath that we deserve because we are sinners by both nature and choice. And so that ought to lead us to action, to obedience, right? Let's look at this next text, Luke 15. And we, we spent a decent amount of time thinking through this text last week, but I'm going to read it all and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So Luke 15, Jesus continued. There was a man, and just for the record, he's continuing a series of three parables. Um, and so this is the third, the cumulative one um, here at, at, at the end of Luke 15. So Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So how does this parable contribute to our understanding of God's fatherhood? could say that God's fatherly love as demonstrated in this parable is forgiving is gracious is merciful we can even say is joyful I mean he throws a party 
and not and not a conservative fundamental party, right? I mean, there was dancing and loud music and a lot of a lot of food. I mean, that's that's the way to do a party, right? And he threw a party. I'd encourage you to jot down this reference if you can find a space. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, 17. The text says this, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That is an amazing picture. That at the end of the book of Zephaniah, that talks about judgment after judgment after judgment on Israel, on Judah, on the Gentiles, and then he offers this like glimmer of hope at the end. And, and for those who repent and turn from their sin, this is the joy and love of the Father that's promised, that their God will be singing over them. That is an amazing picture to think of the God whose who's, who's, uh, tongue uttered words and the world came to be. That he would be singing a song of joy over us when we repent. That's Old Testament imagery. And here in the New Testament, we see a vivid then picture that Jesus paints for us in this setting. Let me just walk through the text one more time and just kind of highlight some things for you to think about. You can kind of draw some arrows and squeeze some letters in here. But So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Insult. In this young punk Asks his dad while he's still alive, Hey, Dad, give me my money. I'm out of here. I mean, that's like contrary to the Mosaic Code. And he, in his face, it's like he's the worst type of uh, disrespect and insult this guy shoves in his dad's face. So his dad obliged. So he divided his property between them. And he would have had to do that three ways, right? Himself, his son, and then his other, his, the older brother. And verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. Determination. I mean, so this guy, like in the face of his father's acquiescing to his his disrespect, now he gathers all his junk, probably right in front of his dad's face, adding insult to, you know, already insult. And he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, understanding something of Jewish culture, pigs and Jews didn't go well together, right? So most likely, he's probably in Gentile territory. Well, if you just think about the New Testament, at least at the beginning part in Jesus' Gospels, we're, we're sitting there thinking, okay, like in the Sermon on the Mount, 
there's Jew and there's Gentile. And the Gentiles are not spoken of in a nice way, right? Like Gentiles are those who are rebellious, those who are away from God, those who are separated from the promises of God, right? So Gentiles aren't spoken of in a good way. This dude's hanging out. He went right to the center of badness, right? Like wherever it was, that's where he gravitated towards. He went the opposite way of where he should have been. And he's mucking around with pigs. So he longed to fill his stomach. So things aren't going well. He's hungry. That He's so hungry that he is willing, he, he would just want to eat what the pigs are eating. This dude is Jewish. He can't like pigs. And now he's just hoping to get a scrap of a pig's meal. I mean, this is really low, right? I mean, this is, you can't get much lower for a Jew than that, right? So he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And then, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I'm starving to death. And this isn't just his hunger talking. This is kind of the beginning form of his repentant heart being revealed, right? It's like he's coming to his senses, not just physically because his, his tummy's telling him, you need food, you idiot. Go back home where you know you'll get it because you're going to be treated better there as a slave than you would be trying to get pig's food. Then verse 18. So here's his plan. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Repentance. Right? So his, he has been crushed. And God has, turned, has, has allowed his heart to be turned. And he is seeing things clearly now. Right? Because he didn't see things clearly before. He thought that the grass was greener. He thought, hey, if I can just get my money, I can get the heck out of here. I can go hang with the Gentiles where it seems like everything's going to be way better. I can satisfy all my longings and desires. And he gets there and everything goes to pot, right? The grass wasn't greener. But by God's grace, his eyes were opened, the blinders were removed so he could see the truth. And then what did he do? It was only when he saw the truth that he was be able he was able to repent. He had a repentant heart. And then halfway through verse 20, so remember he got up and he is now moving towards his father. So he's taken action, he's moving the right direction now. And but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And we talked about this kind of at nauseum last week. But that is amazing love. That is initiative, right? Remember God peering out through the screen door of this, this house with probably a really cool wraparound porch in my twisted imagination with a really long dirt road and the guy slumped over just dragging whatever he's got and probably not even recognizable he's so far off and and God the Father sees him 
and busts through the door, and he's obviously anticipating his return. And he busts through the door and sprints to him, which running was probably not a cool thing for an older guy to do then. It probably wasn't a very dignified thing to do. And he bolted for his son. He ran to his son, the text says. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, now pay attention to this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So there is this amazing repentance of, like, not just I've sinned against God, that's important. I've sinned against you, that's also important. And it's not I haven't just sinned against you, it's I've sinned against God, it's, it's, a, it's both. But listen, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, wait a second. He didn't get. He didn't even get through. Look back up in verse 18. Here's his plan, right? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's got this whole proposition. He's ready to, the speech prepared to give to his dad when he gets home. Just give me a place. And what does his dad do? His dad cuts him off. He said, he comes back and says, Father, I've sinned against you. Okay, let's do it. And here we go. Here's the parade, right? But the father said to his servants, hey, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring, probably a family ring to the He's back. And sandals on his feet, he was returned to the position of the son. This is the compassion and love of the father. So what is our response to that? I mean, it's the same as this guy's response, right? It's that we come to God in humble repentance. That we have the blinders removed, and only God can do that supernaturally. To remove the blinders from our eyes so that we can see our sin for what it is. We can see things as they actually are. We repent. And we come back to the Father. And He lavishes us with unconditional forgiveness, love, and position. It reminds me of Ephesians 1, where He says that He gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Alright. Stop beating that drum. Romans 8 Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. So what does this text contribute to our understanding of God's fatherhood over us? Oh, come on. We're running out of time. You guys got to contribute here. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, of children of God, we're led by Him very easily. Okay. Follow His commands. Okay. 
So that would actually probably tell us more about what our responsibility is. We're given His Spirit when we are born of Him, and therefore we follow, right? We don't um, have an obligation to... We no longer have an obligation to ourselves. We have an obligation to live according to the Spirit, which is obedience. What is the idea of... Uh, Abba Father mean I mean every preacher has probably preached on that text at some point in time and given some awesome illustrations so what is we've all heard it so what does it mean Daddy okay so what what type of emotion does that conjure up then So like an intimacy, maybe? Yeah. I'm thinking that this verse, this passage reminds me that and encourages me that that I am assured my position as a family member in God's family. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit is, is actively participating and is actually... The, the the means by which I I am reassured. Uh, he's Ephesians one. He's the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance. That that's the Holy Spirit in us. Mm-hmm. So the the uh, I know most of you don't read the book, but um, this week was really good, and uh, <laughs> I know that I don't really help you much because I just talk about this stuff and I don't follow the chapter necessarily. They use it as my launching day. So, um, but they have honestly one of the best descriptions of Abba and normally we hear it described as daddy um, but they said, they just described it as basically meaning my own dear father. And, and I, when I read that and then I wrote it down I thought some more about it I thought, you know, that's really good. Because it captures the idea of that intimacy and ownership. Like, he is mine. He's mine. So there's an intimacy that this this text talks about. And there is also an obligation on our part to obey. Because he has gifted us with the Spirit of God. And we no longer have an obligation as... For, for instance, 2 Corinthians 5, I think. I always get this wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.15, I think, is the text where we no longer lived it ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And there is a shift in the way we live. When the Spirit of God enters, we have a new ability to please God and to put to death the sins of self. Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Yeah, okay, Matthew. What you will eat... Actually, Jesus. Okay, fine. I guess you know what you're talking about, so I guess we have to be okay with that. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you buy... Uh, worrying at a single hour to your life 
I mean, couldn't he if he softened that one a little bit? I mean, <laughs> he kind of just sarcastically puts us all in our place. Verse 28, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They did not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Rather, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, speaking about all the just daily necessities of life, they'll be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, just set this, allow me to elaborate for just one second. Set this in context. What what precedes this immediately in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is preaching to his disciples. Talking about treasures. Don't store up treasures on this earth where moth and rust and it's going to corrode and fade away and die. Store up treasures in heaven. And then he says, What? Does anyone know how can anyone read to me how it ends? Matthew 5, 25. What? No, that's Luke, uh, I think. Luke? I mean, that's a good guess, and that's true. It might be there, I don't know, maybe not. I think it's, you cannot serve two masters, right? You cannot both serve God and money. So here, here, just get the picture, all right? Jesus is talking to a wide audience, but primarily to his disciples. And he's saying, disciples, follow me, right? Don't worry about your money. Don't worry about it. You follow me. Now, think about it. All these guys, in some way, shape, or form, were making money, right? A lot of them were fishermen or, you know, had, they all had jobs, some means of income. And Jesus comes and says, hey, come and follow me. And then he says, hey, you can't serve me and money. It, that, it doesn't work that way. Just don't worry about this stuff. Now, you tell me. You're sitting there. I would be scratching my head thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. i got to put food on the table. i got a carpet. i got a house. i got two kids at home. I got a basement that's a disaster, and a spaghetti factory of electrical work. I got, I got, I gotta get, I gotta have money. So if any of you know an electrician, other than my father, I have a lot of free work that you can do. But do you get the point, or get get the feeling? So here's these disciples, and then you put, and Jesus says, "Hey, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I, your heavenly Father, will take care of you." Here's the one thing you need to do. Seek my interest. Follow after me. Obey me. Be all about my kingdom and my agenda and practical, everyday sort of righteousness in this life, being obedient to my mission. Be on mission 
with me. And all of this other stuff will take care of itself because your Heavenly Father will take care of you. So don't worry about it. Yeah. Philippians yeah. 4, he says, be anxious for nothing. Yeah. yeah. And that's another one where I say, yeah. <laughs> that one. It's an easier said or easier read than done, right? So, what? how does this text contribute to our understanding of God's fatherhood? Well, he meets our needs. He is our heavenly father who provides for everything that we need. Material needs, protection, and what what is our responsibility? Don't worry. So that means, in a positive way, trust, trust him and seek first his kingdom. So live for his purposes, right? Not our own. So God's call to every one of us as his disciples is, hey, you're not in this life, and there's nothing wrong with making money, but you're not in the life, this life, to accumulate a bunch of stuff. That's not what your life is about. Your life ought to be about pursuing my purposes and my agenda. And don't worry about all this other stuff. God's got you covered. Last text. Started cruising. We got through two real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. And this one's probably the hardest one for us to swallow because we don't like it. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? Now, keep just bear that in mind. He says, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? So what is to follow is supposed to be a word of encouragement. So just keep that in mind. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they, saw, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So how does this contribute to our understanding of God as our Father? He cares enough about us not to um, let us to continue sinning, going on the wrong path. But he shows us where we're wrong um, through his word, through other other um, Christians, and um, through um, 
again, he loves us enough to not let us keep going mm-hmm. in the wrong direction. And ultimately that um, brings him glory because then we're more, we become more Christ-like as a result as we, as he brings us back to mm-hmm. us. Lena, you're being awfully quiet over there. How should we respond? So the Father disciplines us. The text gives us to, I don't know, probably four or five different things kind of tucked away in there that we, how we should respond to his discipline of us. light of the Lord's discipline. In other words, take it seriously. Don't disregard it. But on the other hand, don't lose heart either. So I consider that that we as his children need to understand what the reasoning behind the discipline is. Because we all as children, it's pretty clear that we're going to be disciplined that is an act of our Heavenly Father to discipline us so that we can share in His holiness. There's always purpose in all of us here that our parents understand that our, hopefully, that our discipline of our children is not because, you know, we delight in discipline. I never did. It's, It's yeah. It's terrible. You know what I mean? We don't delight in it, and I'm sure our, our Heavenly Father doesn't delight in disciplining us, but it's for purpose and for good purpose. Yeah. The text says in verse 7 that we need to endure, right? Because discipline is not going to be pleasant. The text says later on in verse 11. Um, in fact, it can be painful, the author of Hebrews says. Uh, we are to submit to it, uh, end of verse 9. How much more should we submit to the Father, that our Heavenly Father? You know, So if we're willing to submit to our earthly fathers when they discipline us, how much more should we submit to the Father who actually is doing everything for our good all the time? I mean, with correct, pure, holy anger, not, you know frustration anger because you didn't do what you want and now I gotta spank you. So we need to endure it, we need to submit to it. Uh, end of verse eleven talks about that we we must be trained by it, so there's an element where we need to learn from it. And I mean how many of us I mean we're all so stinking stubborn, right? Yeah. We just keep sinning and sinning in the same exact ways. I'll tell you at least a funny story, especially since my mom's here, because she'll appreciate just being... She'll probably be able to correct the story, but this is how I remember it, or at least my mom has told me. But I think that I was probably kind of a wild, little wild 
child, probably like Hadley. Um, <laughs> minus some sweetness, but I, I was kind of active, and I don't know how old I was, but I probably was get, getting ready to get disciplined for the hundredth time for the same thing. And so I cleverly took all my mom's wooden spoons that she would use to discipline me, and I took them downstairs in my dad's workshop, and I cut them all in half. (laughs) And so then she whipped out the rubber spatula. And so she probably laughed. I had a way with her. Um, But... I could see myself still doing something like that today because I'm just that stubborn and that crafty. And I could see Hadley doing the same exact thing. You know, and, and don't we all have a tendency to sin in the same ways over and over again? Maybe your propensity is with your tongue being harsh with someone, or maybe your propensity is thinking very judgmental thoughts about someone or maybe having lustful thoughts or maybe having just being flat out angry when someone looks at you the wrong way or someone cuts you off on your way to church and you're trying to go and worship God. <laughs> you know, which I'm sure, or the train, choo-choo's along, right, in front of all of us. You know, and, and we could all probably, like, take our own spiritual inventory and and we all sin in the same ways and we need God's discipline and we must learn from it so we don't have to keep incurring the same discipline, right? And then ultimately at the end of the day we need to obey. Verse 13 uses this kind of like Old Testament phrase but make level paths for your feet. I think he steals that from might be Isaiah. I don't know where. Don't quote me on that. But the idea is, is kind of like same thing, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not under your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. So there's this path, and and make level paths for your feet, there's this trajectory you go on, and, and, and He will kind of smooth out the rough patches, but there's this idea of make level paths for your feet, set them in the right direction to go the right way, the obedient way. So, what is our response? The Father disciplines us. We endure it. We submit to it. We learn from it. We obey. So as I prayed, at the very beginning, Psalm 34, 8, says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so when it comes down to it, we can look at all of these texts and we can see that God provides, that God is our Father who is a compassionate and gracious Father. One who forgives unconditionally, who has joy in in lavishing his love on us. He disciplines us. All of his fatherly activity could be just like thrown in this bucket titled God's goodness. Because God is a good God. Everything that God does is good. And he is good. And we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. We have maybe not literally I mean some of what we actually have because even food is good you know we've tasted good food we've tasted God's goodness and his provision we've seen it with our eyes how he's provided how he's met our needs we experience it with all of our senses we experience God's goodness and this good God is our father so 
we ought to praise him. We ought to trust him. We ought to obey him. We ought to accept his discipline because we know he is good. We ought to trust that he will provide. We ought to not be anxious. And all these things that we can go back over. So he is our good, good father. That is amazing. He is our father. And if we are in Christ, we are his people. And he's good. So let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good God, that you protect us, that you provide for us, that you discipline us, that you love us with unconditional love, that you have compassion on us, that you show your mercy and your grace, that you're patient. God, would we? Would you help us? Would you energize us by your spirit to obey you, to appreciate you, to accept your discipline, to love you deeply from the heart? May we just uh, be able, as we drive home tonight, to be in awe of your fatherhood over us. And would we respond, and would you help us respond appropriately this week and even tonight, so that we, we could please you, our Heavenly Father. In your name we pray.